Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And we're live. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. And I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm very excited because we are on our fifth installment on the Courageous Conversation series. And if you've been following Jew 3, you know we do a series that's near and dear to my heart where we bring a scholar that's been trained in a more conservative evangelical setting and a scholar that's been trained in more of a mainline setting. And today uh, we have a, a conversation on a big controversial issue. And today we're joined by two pastors that have impacted me uh, greatly, um, Dr. Eric Mason of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Dr. Howard John Wesley of Alfred Street Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. So welcome, uh, pastors. Thank you, glad to be with you all today. Thank you, honor to be with you again, sis. Honor to be with you guys. For, for those who don't know who you are, would you please introduce yourself? Uh, we'll start with Dr. Mason. Well, Eric Mason, uh, pastor of Epiphany Fellowship um, and a husband of one wife. <laughs> got um, got four kids, four wonderful kids, and um, been doing ministry in Philly for about 10 years, but been in ministry for about 23 years. And uh, yeah, that's uh, run an organization called Thriving, an urban resource collaborative that's committed to training urban leaders for a gospel mission in particularly urban context. So, yeah. Awesome. And Dr. Wesley? Uh, real simple, Howard John Wesley, uh, pastor of Street Baptist Church the last eight years. Before that, I had the joy of serving 10 years at St. John's Congregational Church in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm originally from Chicago, came up undergrad at Duke, did um, seminary at Boston University, Finished up uh, D-Man at Northern Baptist, and I'm now a glutton for punishment working on my PhD at Christian Theological in African American <laughs> Preaching and Sacred Rhetoric. So, uh, real committed to the cause of the proclamation of Christ and pastoring a traditional church with yet a relevant and real ministry with an eye towards social justice and missions around the world. Uh, it's probably where I put, you know, my passions and grateful. Uh, that Dr. Mason and I represent the long legacy of great preaching capital man. Just to let everybody know before we get in. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, both of you have spoke a lot about this subject. I know, uh, Dr. Wesley, you're in a series, Enemy of the State, that um, addresses this. And Dr. Mason, you've done the Woke series. Um, and both of your series have been very popular and circulated um, online. Um, how do you address this notion that Christianity is a white man's religion? Um, Dr. Mason, you, you could go first. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that um, is attacking the root of it, I think the root of it is really a conversation that was developed, I think, probably a little under 100 years ago, mainly promoted by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, which really, um, actually, um, Dr. Wesley, one of my one of my line brothers, um, we talk about it all the time because he was Nation of Islam one when oh. we were coming through. And so one of the things I talked about, talked to him about, which is a broader conversation of this, is the fact that he started a narrative that acted like Christianity was first introduced do, introduced to African people um, post the Middle Passage, and and so most of that narrative, to be honest, has colored the way um, the quote-unquote conscious movements uh, ha- uh, look at Christianity. And so because of that, that whole idea of it being a white man's religion, it being forced on us. And I'm like, man, nah, the first thousand years of Christianity was in Africa. You know, and so, it's, so I'm, I, and, I, and when you tell people that, they, they're like, nah, and then you begin to walk them through how, you know, many of the church fathers, when you look at Athanasius, who's called the Black Dwarf, you know, um, when you look at Tertullian, who was talking about the Trinity well before 325 AD, you know, um, before 325 AD, and Augustine, and you began going through, these were North African men of color, and um, even the Desert Mothers, no matter what you believe about what they believe, they were African women. So when you go through all of these, uh, when you begin 
educating people beyond the narrative of just the white Jesus, the whole recoloring. And I think the challenge has been is, is that um, white, I would say fundamentalism has played a significant role in creating um, really this narrative that Christianity is the white man's religion, which to, to me is um, a breaking of the commandments because it's a lie and it's promoted a, a degradation, particularly of African-Americans in relation to us being born in the image of God, just like everyone else is. And so I think that would be the beginning of how I would begin to engage someone concerning the ideal, the trajectory and the narrative of that. So, yeah. I'm really glad that, that to me, man. So there's a core part of this that goes to Christianity and the Bible what's in its core and then how it's perverted and manipulated and used. Yeah. I think all of us can agree that at the core principles of the message and ministry of Jesus Christ is a radicality and rebelliousness that has been lost by the way Christianity has been perverted. Um, I trace that route back to Constantine and what happens when Christianity draws closer to becoming the state religion of Rome, it yeah. moves away from the real authentic message of Jesus Christ. And so what's passed down from Roman civilization is this weak and watered down version of Christianity that endorses policy procedure of the state rather than challenging it. I mean, we gotta remember Jesus was crucified because he stood against Rome. Yeah. And yet Rome then incorporates that message. And as a result, you see nations all around the world uh, using Christianity to mask an evil that we all can agree is absolutely contrary to the nature of God and the true teaching of the word and in Jesus Christ. So when you can support Nazism and the Holocaust, right. Christianity, you know something's wrong with how it's being used. When you can support apartheid, when you can support slavery, when you can support Jim Crow, what you get is a perverted version of Christianity that doesn't right. really hit at the core. And even today, the fundamentalist use, when we talk about this right-wing, ultra-conservative GOP movement, Native Christian is really a caricature of Jesus Christ because what they purport and how the policies that they support are not at the core of who and what Jesus Christ really is. And so as Dr. Mason not only talks about the history of Christianity in Africa, what I would say is even on the post side of the Middle Passage, you've got to look at how African Americans adopted this Christianity that was given to them to make them docile and obedient and how they formed varieties of resistance that embody that Christianity as a way of saying, no, we, we feel a different Jesus. Not one who's saying that we need to be slaves, but one who pushes us towards freedom. And right. many people are ignorant of how Christianity sparked movements of freedom among slaves, sparked movements of resistance to apartheid in South Africa. So to suggest that it's the white man's religion is to totally ignore how the gospel of Jesus Christ has affected black folk and made them push against social structures that they absolutely had to reject. Yeah. What's powerful about um, what Dr. Wesley is saying, particularly about the post middle passages, when you talk about, you know, everybody got that little orange book that's kind of going around talking about to, what is it called? To, to something, a Negro, but it's a, it's a book that's kind of like a compilation of ways in which Christianity was, um, was manip was used manipulatively in order to um, train a slave. Um, and so one of the things that we see with how even Christianity was given to Africans a post the Middle Passage, one of the things was is they weren't allowed to read or become or be literate. But once we became literate, um, which was done through the black church, by the way, <laughs> um, yeah. literacy was done through the black church, you know, because uh, I know the a lot of the conscious community are against the black church, but the, what what ends up happening is through is what ends up happening is is through that um, they begin to uh, have a great experience with reading, understanding what the message of the Bible is, the radical nature of the gospel, and the commitment to the truth of the gospel, which ends up which ends up in my mind um, begin formulating what Dr. Wesley is talking about this Christianity that I think is a transformative Christianity, which became authentic Christianity, which as they began to get 
into the nit and gritty of what Christianity actually is, then what, what happened was, is that was the motivation for abol the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, and so forth and so on. Sorry about that, I had to move. But, um, <laughs> um, and, and, so, and so I think that when we look at the, the nature of how the gospel has worked, when you actually look at, when you look at the message of the Bible, it actually promotes this radical disposition of uh, being against that which would uh, attempt to oppress us because God does uh, identify with the oppressed. So, yeah. And even in the appropriation of the Bible, when you look at all. So first of all, I think it's important to recognize that Christianity has been used to create within black people um, what Baron Singer in their book called a variety of accommodation all the way to protest. Mm -hmm. uh, that there are definitely some elements that were used to uh, make us passive and to accept that this was our God given state. Mm -hmm. At the very core of our forefathers and foremothers was a rejection, a rebellion that that. That's not who God created to be. So when you hear these spirituals, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord to be free. You're talking about some enslaved folk who have the audacity to take the master's religion and subvert it in such a way that they believe that it was a call to freedom. So let me give you a prime example. You know, so for white settlers and slave owners, they saw America as the promised land, that we were coming out of the tyranny of the empirical, the empirical policies <laughs> Empire. So they saw Britain as Egypt and America as the promised land. Right. When African-Americans start getting into religion and he, even hearing before they start reading, their adoption of the Exodus narrative flipped it around. They said, no, America is Egypt and we're looking for our promised land. And so the very Bible that motivated um, Puritans and um, those settlers to leave out of Britain and to come to America is the same narrative that made slaves say, no, we've got to fight against this. I mean, if you look at like the rebellions on the extreme end of like the Nat Turner and the Denmark VC, you're talking about preachers. You're talking about people who use the Bible to motivate. When you look at Harriet Tubman and her work on freeing slaves, this right. is a woman who is deeply motivated by her faith. When you look at the civil rights movement, it always began in church and with prayer and with the word of God and with the inspiration that then gave them the strength to fight and to march. And so, you know, once again, the claim that, that the only thing Christianity has done is to pacify um, African-Americans, I think is a, is a real historical ignorance out of historical ignorance. Now, part of the problem is that in contemporary Christianity, and I know Dr. Mason would agree with this, we've lost that prophetic voice. So the black church has lost its voice to challenge some of these structures, challenge the isms that we still deal with, challenge these racist policies, challenge this current administration. We've become so focused on praise and worship and prosperity that there's a generation now who says, you know, all, all Christianity has done is align itself with very economic and social injustice structures that are still plaguing our people because we right. don't have many prophets in the pulpit anymore. Right. 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 Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I do think we need to regain our prophetic voice. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You said something that I thought was interesting because when we, one of the things we deal with a lot uh, with the G3 project is the, the Hebrew Israelites and um, they take, um, Deuteronomy um, and talk when he talks about slaves going um, into Egypt on ships and they kind of twist that around. And from you speaking, um, I could see how kind of that has gotten um, mixed up um, when you're talking about they're saying Egypt is America. Um, have you heard, have you had any conversations with uh, Hebrew Israelites, Dr. Dr. Wesley? I have. I know Dr. Mason has a little bit more experience. I'm going to let him speak because mine has been a very negative experience. I have not taken time to research anything after that experience because I have a very biased understanding of who can rightly divide the word of truth. <laughs> I'll come back with a more conservative reason of why I reject any interpretation of scripture from the Hebrew Israelites. Yeah, I think... Um, when I, when I think of the whole idea of, I mean, I think one of the things that Dr. Wesley is interested in him talking about the fact that most oppressed groups um, who have contact with the Bible tend to identify with Israel. 
<clears throat> when you look at the Puritans, when they came <clears throat> to, to this country because of their covenantal theology, <clears throat> they believed that they were spiritual Israel and that <clears throat> there was no physical Israel anymore. And so <clears throat> they identified themselves spiritually as Israel with that. And just like Africans who came to this country did, I mean, not came to this country, who were brought here, uh, identified with that. So oppressed people continue to deal with it. I think one of the things the Hebrew Israelites, it, it's according to, the question is what type of Hebrew Israelite are you talking to? So you have, <clears throat> you have the camps, which usually are very, very vulgar um, and very, very disrespectful. I'm from DC, so it's but so long I can deal with, you know, I got some sanctification issues, so I can't have no dude, you know, all cursing me out and talking about my wife and kids. We, we you know, I just got to walk away from that. So you have that, but then you got, you got you you have these individualist movement the individualists who kind of do individual personal interpretation within the hebrew israelite movement then from there you also have um you have you're having what's happening in some places like north carolina they have a group that's now and this is when you know a cult is stabilizing and i call it a cult without any ado or you know without any is when a cult is so stabilizing whenever it enters the middle class um it, whenever it enters the middle class, is going into another phase of stability, mm, and mm. so, um, and so, I think Hebrew Israelitism is starting to enter the um, the the um, the uh, the middle class. Now, let's back up to what, what your original question was. Let me give the root of what's going on with why the Hebrew Israelites are gaining in popularity. <laughs> I think it's because I, I believe the church needs to return to, particularly the Black Church of defining the value of ethnicity and culture and history among African-Americans by affirming it without it overriding our identity in Christ. Mm. And so, in, 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 in other words, blackness is a part of our identity in Christ because God is an artist and he created us all as a masterpiece. Our masterpiece shows itself up in there. And what's happening with the rise of a lot of these different cults is because I don't believe we're helping blacks in America in this season. I think we have in the past, but in this season um, um, to really work through the ideals of what it means to be black, what's your identity and light of coming through the middle passage and how the gospel defines that. For instance, I'm going to tell you who did, who did the best work of it. One of the bishops within the church of God in Christ movement uh, did a dissertation, amazing dissertation ended up getting published. Can't remember his last name. Um, I, I may pull it up before we're over and I wept reading the book because of um, Bishop Mason's commitment to defining black identity, even in his ecclesiology and, and, and in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, which was amazing. So going back to the whole Deuteronomy passage, I think that all of the eisegesis that they're doing is just an attempt to find identity for blacks. That's really all it is. It's, it's an attempt to how can we give identity? And because we're not, I think, I think it's great that we focus on biblical theology, biblical exposition, social justice. Under that, I think we need to add ethnic and cultural identity as something that the gospel needs to be spoken to. So what do we do with the, the, the lack of, conf I mean, the, the history of confusion? What was our language? You know, even if you do ancestry.com and you say, I'm from Sierra Leone, Ivory Coast, Niger, which one do you even identify with? And so it's like, I think that's an important part of our journey. And that's why there's a resurgence of consciousness among the millennial generation, which is finding itself in these different strands of, and that's why Polite is so popular. That's why Umar Johnson is so popular. And that's why people are listening to um, uh, Hebrew Israelites is because of that need for black identity to be defined by God through the church. Yeah. It's amazing, man, to hear you here. One of the, what I would argue, one of the most prophetic voices in the black church who was speaking out about apartheid in the early 70s and his legacy still, to me, has kind of been tainted by his last interactions. But Dr. Jeremiah Wright. Yeah. Jeremiah Wright and his congregation, they had a slogan that they, <laughs> we are unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. Mm. You able to see that black and Christian are not mutually exclusive. You Absolutely. don't lose one trying to claim the other. I think that's an important, important factor. And when, um, when, Black people go to the Bible, as you were saying. I think what we identify is not also just with the Israelites, but to identify that we believe God is on the side of the oppressed. Mm. No matter what, what category that is, 
God stands on the side of the oppressed. That is at the heart of all liberation theology, the audacity to say that God chooses a side and that God is not for a certain thing, but God is for the oppressed. And just remembering to proclaim that so that people know, no, God, God is not on the side of closing our borders to immigrants. No, not, God is not on the side of the taking of black lives while they're under police custody. God is not on the side of policies that oppress the poor and defund Medicaid and right. defund Meals on Wheels, but yet finds money to put billions of dollars in Department of Defense so that we can go to war protecting ourselves against terrorists who don't even exist in the countries we're saying we're fighting against, but then allowing our own people to die for lack of health care. God is not on that side and to be able to have the boldness as a Christian and say, we're not coming in here to talk about seven ways to get prosperity. I'm not going to tell you if you just shout right now, all your problems are going to go away. No, I want you to think about what it means to be black and Christian in a world that wants to distort Christianity and erase blackism. Mm. So being able to you know pull over that. Now, at least at that point, it's important for me to share my own personal view, and that is that scripture is dangerous. It's probably the most dangerous weapon of mass destruction we've seen in the history of humanity. Many of the atrocities against humanity are launched by those who try to eisegete biblical support. Right. Pulling out one or two passages here or there and suggesting that this validates um, these atrocities and these evils. Mm. So I do not accept nor validate interpretation of scripture um, by someone who just owns a Bible and distorts passages. For me, everything begins with your Christology. And I said to my church, even this past week in our sermon, you can't read Deuteronomy right until you get the cross right. Paul will mess you up until you understand what God is doing in grace. Revelation will keep you up late at night until you understand the atoning, redeeming work of God on the cross of Calvary through a savior who identified with the poor and died as an enemy of the state to give us voice to rebel against that which is against the work and the will of God. And so I, I, don't, I don't even engage these black Israelites in their understanding of scripture because you're Jesus in right. And that's a foolish conversation for me. Wow. It begins with understanding Christ. So that's why when we have the written law and we don't understand it, the word becomes flesh so that you can have the living law and you can see what God is saying you missed through the reading of the word. Let me show it to you in the life, the person, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And until you get grounded in that, that that's where my hermeneutic begins. And I can't, I can't digest or ingest any interpretation of scripture that does not align itself with what I know God to be about in the work of Jesus Christ. And that's a, uh, I think that's a profound point. One of the things um, I'm not sure in, 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 the context of in Alexandria, how prevalent they are, but I know online they're in indoctrinating and converting um, thousands upon thousands of millennials. Uh, there's a group, I think that uh, Dr. Mason and I are in about the Hebrew Israelites and I can attest they troll Jew three project on a daily basis. I know is that, has that been your experience with them as well, Dr. Mason? They don't really, tr- they don't answer my questions anymore. They, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, they, I mean, um, it's it's funny because I ask very, very difficult questions. And so w- when it comes to their understanding of scripture, and so one of my big things, without getting too far off the subject of white man's religion, one of the things that I'm, you know, their their missioner or their, um, you know, um, what's the um, deal to the um, to the Muslims? Not, not the Quran, but the Hadith. Their Hadith or their missioner uh, you know, is basically uh, from um, Timbuktu to Babylon to Timbuktu. That's like their, they, I mean, they believe that more heavily than the New Testament. I mean, and so the challenge um, with Hebrew Israelites is they believe most of them would hold the Pentateuch as mainly the word of God. Everything else is a commentary on the law. And so th- therefore we can flip flop and play through that. And then they'll pick and choose prophecies. And so, once I begin to talk through and work through the fact that, you know, you don't utilize the entirety of the 66 books, you know, it just, it kind of d- destroys the argumentation. And then they can't even trace, the challenge is they can't trace how in the world are you, did people go from uh, uh, Northern Africa, which you would, we would call nowadays Saudi Arabia, uh, where Israel is, come down into into Africa 
and get and then get shipped over and it's pick and choose only the Israelites to come. It's, it's just madness. And so, but at the end of the day, it's really an attempt again to give identity to black people in America. Like that's like, if I, I think, I think that's the thing we can't miss. I don't think it's even spiritual for them. That's why they say it's not a religion. It's a nationality. Why do they say that? Because they're trying to give cultural and ethnic identity uh, that's missing. And they're molesting that. Um, you, it's a good book on um, new, uh, um, Gods of the Metropolis uh, that was written by a black sociologist about in the 30s or the 40s. Very, very good book I read last year. And it talks about the different cults of um, um, mystery cults in the inner city, particularly the ones that were formed in Philadelphia. And they dealt with five or six of them. And one of the things the sociologist said each one of them had in common, this was, this was like 70 years ago. He said the thing that they had in common was they molested the silence of the church to emphasize black identity and define it through theology. And so what it was, so what happens is, is they basically took that. That's what Elijah Muhammad did. He took that vacuum. When you look back to Noble Drew Ali and the 23 scientists, Noble Drew Ali is the one who trained Farad Muhammad, you know, who created the nation of Islam. And so when you look back to now, the Moors are making another rise again. What do they emphasize? nationality and sovereignty or you know over and over and over and over and over again when you look at all of these different conscious groups they're they're trying to say hey we're going to put the church on blast because it doesn't give us identity it only gives us an identity that subjugates us to whites now what we have to do on the solution side of things is we have to begin to we have to begin to have african-american pastors who are scholars writing writing on uh outside of western church ideology they have, we have to begin writing the narrative of people of color in church history and emphasizing that and putting it out there and giving alternative communications of everybody in the Bible who is particularly black. I mean, how in the world did Paul go somewhere and he gets looked at and they called him an Egyptian? They said, he, he's an Egyptian. Then he ended up talking about he's a Roman. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on through the Bible just on dealing with that. So, yeah. Deep, deep. Did you have anything to say to that, Dr. Wesley? Well, again, I'm, you know, I'm going to share that my understanding of uh, black Israelites and Hebrew Israelites is so, so limited because my first encounter was so negative, kind of like Eric was saying, uh, they got up in my face with all this vulgarity. And, you know, after that, I shut them down because I've, I've got too many things to do in my life than to argue with <laughs> But I think the key word was also the cult nature, um, whereas I would not dare define uh, the nation of Islam as a cult. Um, I think it has much truer uh, rooting in um, Islam, maybe not Orthodox Islam. I think what you see with these black Hebrew Israelites is definitely cultish. And I think being able to identify the dynamics of cult and eisegesis of text, denial of family, um, almost channeling not only this nationalism, but this frustration about being black in America um, is what does kind of make it attractive. And the church definitely has some work to do as a result, you know, to be aware of these movements that are claiming millennials and to regain that prophetic voice of the church. I think the church was damaged greatly by the prosperity movement that launched in the late eighties, you know, through the nineties that pegged us as nothing more, you know, than being about materialism and prosperity. And then when we start facing these social justice issues, we have nothing to say. We've sold our seat out of the table. Yeah. There are very few prophets in the pulpit. I think Marvin McMichael was right when he asked where have all the prophets gone that we have, been subsumed to praise and worship, prosperity, and American patriotism without questioning how the gospel of Jesus Christ challenges all three of those. Um, And so to reclaim that radicality of Jesus Christ is where I am right now in my journey as a preacher, a pastor, a budding young scholar, and am grateful to have a congregation uh, that is hungering for more truth than let's just shout and think everything's going to be better. One of the th- one of the obstacles to this whole idea of Christianity being a white man's religion is art. Um, I think that plays a major role. The pictures of the white Jesus. I don't know if you've seen Muhammad Ali's viral video where he's talking about white Jesus and why he rejected Christianity and why is everything white. Um, how do you think art has played a part in this whole um, the of it, whiteness being kind of hijacking? Uh, Christian identity, especially in America? 
Well, from our perspective, um, what again, we have to kind of remember who controls the artwork that we've adopted and what we see in media. Very few of us do. So to the same point uh, that Dr. Mason was saying, you know, we need black scholars who are writing. Uh, we need black entrepreneurs who are supporting and funding African-American art that does paint a culture, uh, uh, excuse me, does paint a counter cultural portrait of the Christ that we have adopted within our churches, a Christ that I remember growing up in a black church in Chicago and that Jesus on the back window was about as white as white could get, <laughs> you know, and I didn't challenge it then. I didn't challenge it then. It was just, oh, that's who Jesus was. And only as I began to realize what does that do to the psyche of African Americans to envision Christ as white with blonde hair? And where did that come from? Where did that image come from? And when you trace that, none of that comes from blacks who, or even Africans who are worshiping. It comes from, you know, the, once again, the Roman influence that makes it the European influence and the European characterization of Jesus Christ that becomes adopted without question uh, within our churches. And to be able to question that, rebel against it, and paint a countercultural, different narrative of Christ is important. And it needs to show up in our artwork as well. It's amazing. I remember visiting a couple of churches in Asia before, and Eric, they don't have a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Right. The, they envision actually has features. Because right. recognize Christ relates to us as we are as a people. And, you know, and I don't think, you know, at least just a couple of black pictures of Jesus change everything. I think what it does is allow us to examine um, with prophetic imagination that there is an alternative to the white version of Christianity that was Romanized that we've adopted within our churches without recognizing, again, what Dr. Mason keeps expressing, that we have got to re-envision, re uh, re-embrace black Christianity to embrace our ethnicity and our religion together. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> one of the things that, um, you know, raising children, you feel it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I asked one of my sons years ago, uh, I think it's my teenage son. He was younger. I asked him, I said, what color was G is, is God? He said, white. I said, son, what color is Jesus? White. So I, I, I got on a journey as a father um, because of <clears throat> the type of art. And I've challenged publishers, publishers on their painting of everybody in church history white, as well as children's books mm -hmm. um, uh, promoting whiteness. Um, and I told them it is an assassination on the identity of anybody else that's not white. And uh, I said, it's an, it's, an, it's an affront on the Imago day. And one of the things I began teaching my sons is, I mean, I know this is gonna sound crazy, but I said, first off, God is non-corporeal, so he doesn't have a body. He, and, you know, I didn't say non-corporeal, but I said, God doesn't have a color. But then when I was talking about the incarnation of God, he incarnated in this particular color, you know, or, you know, between olive and dark skin, you know, and began putting my kids on a trajectory of that because, the reason why I say that is because art has a deep impact on how we view everything. If you look at hip hop in the late 80s and 90s, um, the promotion of consciousness was monstrositously done <laughs> through, you know, you look at Public Enemy, um, you look at uh, leaders of the new school, brand Nubians, uh, um, a tribe called Quest. You keep going. Art is probably one of the most powerful means to get people inspired to look at stuff. <clears throat> and so when you look at, I don't know if I would say back to something you said earlier that a lot of people are converting to Hebrew Israelites or even converting to, to all of these different micro religions. What I'm finding is it's, it's, it's dispositional conversions. So what do I mean by that? We have dispositional conversions because people begin to get to the point where I'm 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 not necessarily a part of this religious group, but I'm daggone sure gonna hate the church. And so and so th so there's more of this just disposition of I'm about love of self, knowledge of self. I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. I'm gonna do my business. I'm a you know do whatever, but I, I'm gonna hate the church. And I think what's happened over the years with the way in which white evangelical fundamentalism post you know uh, the Reformation has done 
a, a, a job for the last 500 years. It's been 500 years of Western culture being presented as mainly influenced by whites. And I think that just has to, that has to change. Yeah. How do you think the uh, emphasis on just the Reformation has impacted this whole concept of Christianity being the white man's religion? Because Dr. Macy, you spoke about, you know, us going through church history and starting uh, from the beginning. Um, but it seems like in the West, we kind of focus on Martin Luther and John Calvin. And because of that, and German um, scholars, the emphasis on that kind of promotes this whiteness. Um, how do you yeah. think we could, how do you think that's, do you think that's uh, contributed as much as the white Jesus portraits have? Yeah, because I mean, when you have someone like Jonathan Edwards, who allegedly held slaves, you know, as, and, and then white evangelical fundamentalists saying he's the greatest thinker in Western history. That, that is, that is, I mean, that is, I mean, that is, man, I'm just like, that, that's mind boggling to me. You know, when you look at the Puritans who helped formulate how slavery is done, it's just kind of like, man, y'all like, like when you like it's it's hard to quote a theologian to people you're discipling, particularly where I am, where they do research. The hood dudes we minister to and the middle upper class people we minister to, they do the a, a type of research as you know, that is not. And that's how the East Coast is. They research and man, find out a dude owns slaves. That's like kind of counterproductive to discipleship process. It's just. I don't know, man. It just, it really, that I'm still working through a lot of that, if I'm honest, just working through a lot of the frustrations of how deep this goes. So, yeah. For me, Lisa, I can appreciate the work of the Reformation. Um, and again, the times when you have to look at the core of a movement and then the distortions that come as a result. Right. I, I appreciate some of the core of the reformers thinking. But I think the great sin in contemporary world that we live in is a failure to incorporate the voice and the theology of others who've been excluded from the table. So if you go back, you know, to the creation of like black liberation theology, what you see are these scholars, these thinkers who are saying, listen, we have the right to bring our voice and our understanding of God to mainstream America to inform who and what we see God is. Yeah. So they, they force their way in. You get the James Cones and. Um, all the others who are pushing their way in. And today, there are more who are knocking at the door from the feminists to the womanists to the so-called third worlds to the Asians to be able to hear the voice of those who envision God in a different way to come to the table. And the problem with like a fundamentalist who said what Dr. Mason just raised about, you know, Jonathan Edwards being the greatest thinker, because you ain't read enough. That's your problem. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, and you think that that's great. I could throw some folk in front of you that would challenge, upset, and distort your theology, and that's a good thing for you right. to be able to see that there are other voices that need to be heard and brought to the table for us to really live in the world in which we live today, uh, particularly from the womanists, particularly from these post-colonial interpretations of Bible, particularly from those who fought in the struggle against um, all different forms of oppression to see how Gustavo Gutierrez- <coughs> Absolutely. Know, to, to hear about Bishop Romero, to read the writings of the womanists, to read the writings of these black liberation theologians, to see what's happening now, even millennials, you know, to hear their voice about this. I think it, give, it gives us a broader picture than to limit our theology to a Jonathan Edwards. I mean, you're basically showing your ignorance and inability to listen to others who have the right to be heard. <clears throat> yeah, Jonathan Edwards, I mentioned him because He's a, he's a post-reformer reformer, but he's kind of like the culmination of the Reformation, although he wasn't during the Reformation. He was during the Enlightenment. <clears throat> but um, in a, and I, I agree with uh, Howard. I think main thing, they were, uh, they, they, they did some great things, the reformers. I think the secret challenge, though, to the reform that I have for that is who were the reformers theologically influenced by. <clears throat> if, if you read Calvin, it, uh, if you ultimately read Calvin and you read Zwingli and you even read Martin Luther, but particularly uh, Calvin and Zwingli, 
and you look at their influences, guess who were their influences in being reformers? Tertullian and Augustine. In other words, North African men who were 1,500 you know, or less years ahead of them that laid the foundation. There would be no reformation without the church fathers, the North African church fathers, because all of the theology that was promoted during the reformation, I'm reading um, right now, I'm reading Athanasius' uh, book on, on the incarnation, amazing book to read a guy that's a few hundred years past, um, past um, um, first century. He's one of the guys that's actually at Nicaea. Um, you mentioned Constantine earlier, Constantinianism or Christendom, he challenged Constantine, a, a, a black short dude, stood in the midst and, ch and challenged the ruler of the known world and was exiled because of his commitment to truth. And so that wasn't the first reformation. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so it's kind of like, man, this is like, and it's, and it's not just about emphasizing white and black. It's about like, artistically communicating and informationally highlighting aspects of the narrative that make someone into an oppressor by how they exclude the contributions or, there it is. Or, or, and not just exclude their contributions, but exclude who they actually are culturally and ethnically in the way that, because if you look at some scholars, they'll come up with, they'll say these guys were more Roman and, they were probably just in North Africa, but they were probably, you know, white lights. It's kind of like, come on, y'all. Let's 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 be honest about where these guys are from, what ethnicity they were, and what their contributions were, and how they impacted. I think if you take if anybody teaches on the Reformation without teaching on the influence that the Church Fathers had on, they they wouldn't have noticed the issues with the Catholic Church, the Reformers, if it wasn't for the work of the the uh, African church, the North African church fathers. So that's deep. You hit on a uh, nail on the head though, man. And you know, we've culturally allowed ourselves to believe that North Africa ain't Africa. You know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> right, 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 right. It's a redefining of the boundaries. Well, no, actually North Africa is Southern Europe. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it robs us of the cultural contribution that we've made to Christianity and the influence that we've had throughout history. And the same thing is happening today that voices are being silenced. They're not, right brought to the table that we're not aware of it. And again, you know, when you get seminary trained pastors who aren't reading, who aren't pressing themselves to hear new voices, we wind up just passing on the adopted Christianity that doesn't um, involve the voices that have really shaped and formed it. So I think things like this Jude 3 project, Lisa, Eric was right. It's doing things that you may not even be aware of now and reminding us of the real history of our faith and what it means to defend that faith, not not the white adopted faith, but the faith that has been shaped by voices from the margin ever since Christ died. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I, I, I think um, with looking at this whole idea, I think the emphasis of the nature of the gospel, um, I think I think people are really oblivious, particularly in this whole white man's religion uh, argument, don't realize, you know, it's interesting that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the content of the gospel. Romans 1.16 talks about the nature of the gospel. In other words, one tells you what the gospel is, the other one tells you what the gospel does. And when the Bible talks about the fact that the the the, the gospel is the power of God, it's the um it's a it's the multivitamin pill of God's omnipotence in a message that is able to transform and shape everything, even, even how we view our culture, how we value our culture and how we are transformed from the inside out and value it more greatly because regeneration is, you can't see anything and enjoy anything fully until you're regenerated by the renewing power of the gospel by faith. So, and I think that's an, an emphasis that we need to continue to press forward in. For both of you, I know you both have a large uh, millennial population. I know you have one at Epiphany and I know um, at uh, Alpha Street, you have Kaya too, which is, a large uh, group of millennials who are all um, really, I think it's amazing what both of you have been able to do as far as reaching and engaging millennials. How do you help, how would you help those who are millennials that may be watching or may see this later or just in general, who have really been hurt by this idea of Christianity and the white man's religion have had negative experiences? Um, how would you help pastorally lead 
um, through them through that process. Because I know for me, I'm in a lot of uh, conservative white evangelical spaces. So I fluctuate from <laughs> in different black church settings in and out. And I see a lot of things and I'm like, man, these things can be really hurtful in some conservative evangelical contexts. And you actually have to talk through things sometimes because of the way <laughs> ways sometimes in which um, you're treated or this whole idea that you're when you say you're doing um, recently, I said, I'm doing apologetics in the black context. And it was like, oh, OK, so you're doing inner city ministry. This whole idea that black is synonymous with inner city sometimes is, is pervasive in, in conservative evangelical context. And it could be really hurtful um, to many black millennials. So how would you as a pastor help um, navigate people navigate through that? I'll take a stab at it. Um, and I just wrote down three things that I think um, I've probably subconsciously tried to shape in our own ministry. And number one, we've been talking about this all day is detaching um, the Christianity that hurt them from the authentic message of Jesus Christ. Obrey Hendricks has a quote in his book, The Politics of Jesus. He basically said that if Jesus were alive today, he'd probably stand against the religion that bears his own name. And being able to reclaim the historical true messages of Jesus Christ that, that aren't at the heart of some of the practice of Christianity for the last 2,000 years, I think is critical uh, for people to be able to see this. As a matter of fact, I received a text message yesterday from a millennial within our church who's listening to the sermon series and in essence she said pastor i want to thank you for helping me reconnect with jesus because yeah. jesus i've been hearing about and um, didn't seem real to me didn't seem human but this jesus i can relate to and so just to be able to hear her say that she found christ again by detaching christ from this watered down pimped out perverted christianity is is key to me I think number two, the church has to be a place where we give voice to our discontent and our disgruntled uh, perception of what's going on in American life and indeed the world. This isn't, church isn't a place where we come and hide our head in the sand from, you know, the horrors of the world in which we live, the administration we're under, um, what young millennials are really dealing with. And so often in church, especially church that is run by an older generation that is detached from that, there's a lack of relevance. There's a lack of being able to come in and feel like this speaks to what I deal with Monday through Friday. It's a shame to be anachronistic in church that that all of a sudden I've been dealing with hell Monday through Friday. And when I get in church, we speak nothing about it. We just hide our hands. And so, you know, on Sunday, I stand and I name the young ladies who are missing from D.C. because the media is not giving their names. The media is not covering it enough. Let's address that this is really happening. Let's talk about what's happening with uh, the president's um, budget that's coming out and how that's affecting real people. So to be able to give voice to that hurt and voice to their own experience so that the gospel is now ministering to where we are, as opposed to this idealistic, uh, politically docetic, uh, economically docetic mission and ministry of Jesus Christ is, is ridiculous. And so the more relevant you are, the more we don't hide our sands. And it's again about reclaiming that prophetic voice. Yeah. I think it's a natural draw because there's something about the gospel black Israelites cannot give you. There's something about the gospel you will not find in the nation of Islam. There's something about the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jehovah witnesses will not ever be able to give you that when you see that true proclamation of the God of the cross, I believe that it can't help but draw millennials because it's been drawing people for thousands of years. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, a couple of things. Um, one of the first thing I do is I affirm people's hurt. Um, I think one of the, one of the um, most crazy things to do is be dismissive towards someone's authentic hurt, whether right hurt or wrong hurt, hurt is hurt. I think that's a, that's a huge piece of ministering to millennials. I don't, it's just same. I was just, talking to the Lord about it the other day, it seems like um, our church attracts like David and first um, Samuel uh, 23 says all those who were discontented, uh, disconnected and in debt uh, connected themselves to David and made him their Lord. So it's kind of like, I feel like that's what I'm going through with a lot of millennials. Um, I, I think also I encourage them to deal with their hurt. So if they have a specific place of hurt, I ask them to, I, I, I challenge them to walk through if you had an issue with a pastor or a church, I'm not saying you got to go back, but you got to in some way, shape or form. If you haven't sought peace, I think the gospel demands that you on some level seek peace unless 
it was some type of danger that they would be in. Um, so, so, so that, um, and then I give them opportunities, like Howard said, um, I, I give them opportunities to uh, basically voice their challenges that they've experienced. And we've done that even publicly. So, so that's been a huge thing. Also, um, one of the things we, we do is challenge them to be healed from their hurt by putting themselves in situations where they have uh, healthy experiences with other people in the local church, particularly in healthy local churches. Hopefully ours is uh, healthy. And then lastly, um, I, I, I give them a challenge, man. Um, to be honest, I say I give them an opportunity to be change agents through the stuff that they're frustrated about. So I'll have, we have this, we have, when we have a, a, a membership class, somebody was talking about, you know, what are we doing for young girls and da 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 And they start popping their neck. And I'm like, all right, so why don't you, my, my role, what I'm going to give you is I want you to set up a proposal of what you think the church should be doing with that. And let's have a meeting and talk about how we can create a ministry that's specifically to that area since it's in concert with our vision as a church. And then what we'll do is in the budget, new budget year, we'll give you a budget to be able to execute that particular thing that you're looking to get done. Because one of the things I love about millennials is, is there's this sense of activism, uh, this sense of a commitment to actually get stuff done. So that's why we ended up starting the Walk Church Think Tank. And now we got all of our professionals together. And so one of the things we're working on right now is the School to Prison Pipeline. So we're, um, 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 we're I'm meeting with um, the DA's office today to talk about the, the, the idea of how some of the guys that we work with, how we can be a place where guys and gals who are troubled, who get in the system, actually can come to the church and we have an alternative program for them versus them being thrown either into general population or them being thrown into juvie, uh, particularly uh, those under the age of 18. We're working with our principals in different areas and telling, you know, millennials, let's go ahead and get out of work with our principals, work because we're, we're, we're mentoring in six schools in our area. And so I'm trying to get them involved in that. And how do we create an atmosphere where we depolice schools and, and uh, decriminalize the way youth are raised in the inner city to be desensitized uh, with police as authority because of how natural is a part of the school system. And so when we talk about doing, uh, getting millennials busy, that's, that means getting millennials into places where they feel like and experience what God has created them to do. And that's employ their gifts and serve one another. So, yeah. That's key, man. I just wrote it down and, you know, that being able to serve and be active and involved in ministry that actually makes a difference in the world in which they live, because what they want to know is that what I'm believing, what I'm hearing, how I'm worshiping, what does it do for what's right outside my church? Absolutely. What does it do to make a difference? And I think the church historically has and still almost maintains a monopoly on the ability to influence and change black communities in ways no other organization can. Show me one thing. These black Israelites are doing to mentor young black men. Tell me one thing they're doing to put food on hungry people's table. Tell me last time they visited prisons. Tell me last time they had programs to give young kids school supplies to get them ready to go back and free haircuts and vision screenings. They, they don't have that capacity. And millennials want their faith to translate into their hands, that there's something they can actually do. And I think the church still has the ability to do that. And that's one of the things I think we need to reclaim, getting outside of our sanctuaries and getting back into the communities with the real programs. I mean, we never, ever expected government to change the black community. We never expected elected officials to make the real difference. We believe that the church made the real difference. And when millennials see a church that is active and involved, I promise you, Lisa, you have no problem growing in that group. We, we've taken on probably about 5,000 members plus in the last eight years, and over 60% of them are under 50, over, maybe over 70% under 50. And it's because we have an engagement with community. Like right now, we're, we're raising sanitary napkins, tampons to send over to Liberia because while I was there, we found out that young ladies can't go to school when they're on their menstrual cycle because they don't have sanitary products. And so I put a charge to our church, man, within two weeks, these young ladies had raised 100,000 uh, sanitary napkins that we're sending over to Liberia as we speak. And when young millennials see that, as opposed to helicopters and Bentleys and mansions of their pastors, they know that their service and their giving is going to a way that really transforms the world. So we got to break with some of this materialism, this prosperity, these outward signs of success and realize 
according to Christ, is when we become the least of these and serve those who are in need. And one of the things that I found that millennials love is when somebody say something crazy about the church or their church, they're able to combat it with something their church is actually doing. <clears throat> it's, it's funny to see the pride in people's face when somebody say, well, the church don't do nothing. Well, and then they say, well, my church, you know, and they start getting it, getting it in on, like, this is what my church does. And then people are like quiet. And so I think that that's important. It's interesting. I won't name the, uh, the, the, the um, magazine that I emailed this morning, uh, but I, they put out this crazy video about, you know, uh, basically prosperity and all of that prosperity and just coloring the black church and black leadership as you know money hungry and i sent to them an email and i basically said look y'all um that represents less than one percent of churches across the globe particularly black churches i said the average pastor is bivocational um <laughs> you know i said uh, or underpaid and so i said why don't you put out a narrative why don't if you let me i'll give you a list of mid-sized, large, and small churches that are doing significant things to impact their community. And will you promote that out there? And this is a major platform. They hit me back and I'm giving them like uh, uh, churches out there that are actually doing stuff. So since you mentioned what y'all are doing, how I'm going to put y'all on the list too. Like I'm like, y'all need to do significant work in changing the narrative, particularly. We got to really work on, I think we need writing, but I think also we need uh, we need more videos out and we need memes. That's how people, they get educated through memes. It's funny how people think they're expert because they saw a YouTube clip. And so um, and so I think we need to play on that reality by changing the narrative, really talking about the narrative that exists already out here as churches are doing stuff for communities. And I think that's an outlet that millennials can be impacted by and utilize as something to promote for the glory of Jesus Christ, man. Awesome. Well, we are out of time, and I thank you both for your time. Uh, this has been a rich experience, and I know all who listen are going to be encouraged. Would you like to leave um, uh, w leave us with resources that uh, and books that have impacted you on this topic and ways that people can get in contact with you on social media? All right. Well, uh, the easiest thing, I can be followed on uh, both Twitter and Instagram, Pastor HJW, uh, or both of them, and I actually check that and respond. So, you know, I'm always open to hear. Um, right now, my my journey has been impacted greatly by the most recent course I've been in. Um, shout out to all my PhD cohort at CTS working on this PhD in African American preaching and sacred rhetoric. Um, but Jesus um, and Empire by Dominic Crossan, um, and The Shadow of Empire by Richard Horsley, and The Politics of Jesus uh, by Aubrey Hendricks are books that have greatly impacted my understanding of the real message of Jesus Christ and Christianity that stands against imperialism. And America obviously is the greatest empire uh, that the world has ever known. Um, so for me, those trace a good history of the real authentic Jesus. And that's where I find myself immersed right now. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for the Jude um, broadcast and all that you guys do. So keep it up. Um, you know, things that's influencing me uh, continuously is a book by Thomas Oden, How, uh, how uh, Africa Shaped uh, the Christian Mind. I think that is an amazing book uh, to talk about this whole idea of uh, white man's religion stuff and is a good beginning place. Another book that is extremely engaging that needs to be reprinted is by Dr. Carl Ellis, his book on free at last. Um, amazing book. And so those are books that have been helpful with me um, continuing to be shaped by and engaging on these particular issues that we're talking about. I can name more, but that's, that's, that's a good start. Um, you can follow me at Pastor E-M-A-S-E on every platform except for Facebook. It's just Eric Mason, but Instagram uh, and Twitter. And uh, I don't do Snapchat. Um, I, I just don't. And um, what's the other one? Uh, Periscope. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa. It's a great opportunity. I'm glad to be able to have this conversation with you to contribute to the Jude Project, and especially again with my fraternity brother, just goes to show you, you know, you, you got to get us around yourself some capitalists who know the Lord. We can help you out. We help you out. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude Three Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. 
by searching the G3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible Engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage Scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.